we all have a role to activate our agency if it's not right and we want to write a different future, it's about what we do today. Stop waiting for governments. Stop waiting for local councils and laws and regulations. It is about how we decide as citizens, as communities. Hello, my name is Matthew Sortino and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today I'm speaking to Hannah Asafiri. For many in Melbourne, Hannah needs no introduction. However, for those that have not had the opportunity to hear about Hannah and the tireless work she does, I thought I would let the Victorian Government do the talking. Hannah was inducted into the Victorian Honour Roll of Outstanding Women as a local champion in 2017, and the following comes directly from their profile page. Whether it is fostering social cohesion through community events or creating a safe, diverse space for Muslim women to share their stories... Hannah Safiri is a compassionate and unspoken hero within the Victorian community, celebrated for both her generosity and success as a businesswoman. Hannah has dedicated her professional and private life to removing barriers that prevent women from living prosperous lives. By opening her first restaurant in 1998, the popular Moroccan soup bar in North Fitzroy, an institution for many Victorians, Hannah has provided employment opportunities for marginalised members of the community. Hannah's approach to business is both unconventional and effective, passionately grounded in an understanding of community and generosity. Hannah introduced the concept of a verbal menu and communal eating to dining in Melbourne, contributing to a unique culinary culture which has been embraced by Melburnians from all backgrounds. Her successful career was forged by her drive and passion to dispel misinformation and negative cultural stereotypes and to create a more supportive Victorian community. In 2015, Hannah was awarded Time Out's Legend Award for her flair for innovation and entrepreneurship. Hannah is passionate about the need for greater intercultural understanding by creating opportunities through respectful cross-cultural relations. Hannah holds monthly events coined Speed Data Muslim and Conversation Salons to bring together academics, journalists and community organisations to debate and discuss contemporary society with a focus on women's issues and racism. Hannah has been a mentor for many young women, particularly marginalised backgrounds. Hannah has made long-term and notable contributions to greater intercultural understanding between diverse community groups. She has played an extraordinary role in promoting the rights of Muslim women, and indeed of all women. Her vision is advantageous to the Victorian community and has inspired many others. Now, I couldn't have said that any better myself. Hannah is an absolute legend. She is intelligent, wise, understanding, and simply put, what the world needs right now. Hannah has an uncanny ability to sift through the rubbish we are often confronted with and make sense of issues no matter how big or small. It was an honour to hear about Hannah's personal and professional journey and delve into how she has made it her mission to act with social justice at the core of everything. Do not skip a second of this conversation. If you want to find out more about Hannah and the Moroccan Super, you can follow Hannah on Twitter at Asafiri underscore Hannah or follow the Moroccan Super on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to Moments of Clarity. Remember to subscribe and review the podcast and share it with your friends and family. And now without further delay, I bring you Hannah Asafiri. Hannah, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's my absolute pleasure. I've told you this earlier and um, I'll, I'll tell you again that you've been one of my most requested, if not the most requested guest for me to get. Um, I've had many people say, you know, what you talk about on the podcast and, you know, that idea of aligning values and actions and having a past that's played a part in really guiding, you know, who you are today. People say that, you know, Hannah is this person, Hannah Asafiri. So I'm really, really glad that you can join me. 
to share some of your insights and perspectives on the world and, and we can, you know, work to inspire some people and, and just give people something different to listen to in the, the world that we've, we've got today. <laughs> Look, thank you. And it's, it's absolutely humbling when, and I think I said this to you before, you know, when not only are we privileged and lucky enough to be able to walk our talk and uh, live as closely as possible to uh, our sense of um, what we believe to be the integrity of our values and they may not be shared by many people, but the fact that we have that opportunity and we exist in a world where it's safe to do that. And at the same time, what's humbling is that this vision, I guess, resonates with others I mean, otherwise it'll, it'll just be you kind of talking to yourself and <laughs> talking about social justice and human justice and, and uh, human rights and environmental justice. And all those values, sadly, don't have a lot of currency with governments at the moment and they don't have a lot of currency with no, 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 even the lefty kind of or the left-leaning governments, especially during this pandemic. Most of the conversation um, has been around economic rebuild and a lot of these values have fallen by the wayside, sadly. You know, the commitment to asylum seekers, the environment, women, uh, those on the margins of society. And that, in a sense, needs an advocate in us now more than ever, and it needs us to be more unapologetic than ever. So the fact that there is a resonance with uh, these values, um, I just think, is so humbling for me. And that is where I find a sense of rejuvenation back where I can give back tenfold. And with it, I I guess am blessed, uh, for lack of a better word, to be um, in a community who also enables us to be unconventional and quirky and, and is generous enough to accept our, you know, um, oftentimes, you know, very quirky ways, whether it be announcements about social justice in the middle of dinner service and most people kind of go, okay, this is weird, but okay. But but that we are enabled to to stay true to some of those values and and unapologetic now more than ever, to me, is is not only humbling, but it, it is something that absolutely re-inspires me to do more. So thank you for having me. Oh, not a problem at all. And you mentioned your restaurant there and quirky and and that yeah, idea. Yeah. I, I'm going to start, you know, at the most recent time, which is uh, your restaurant Moroccan Soup Bar is opening up tomorrow night, our time, but the yeah. listeners it would have been opened um, during the week. You're opening up. You've had this rush of renovation, big changes, a move, you know, from location. Can you go through... To start with, just a little bit of introduction of the restaurant itself and the history of it, and then what you're about to embark on now. Mm. So, um, 23 years ago, this uh, again quirky idea, definitely unconventional at the time. Um, the Moroccan soup bar was born, and it was um, naively an idea where we can express values where they are the foundation of hospitality and they are values of taking responsibility for circuit breaking the cycle of disadvantage for women through practical employment so that the women we employ we give them opportunities instead of just rhetoric and the rhetoric around supporting women and and sending them and referring them to all these services I wanted to be able to practically translate that rhetoric into something tangible so that these women, uh, we can accompany them on a journey from crisis intervention, 
whatever that crisis may be, whether they be leaving violent partners, fathers, brothers, sisters, lovers, it didn't matter, and or that they found themselves at a social disadvantage because they didn't have the means to be literate or that they were asylum seekers, whatever their, their circumstances were, we wanted uh, to accompany them on that journey from where they were and to be able to transition them to a place where they can champion those causes themselves. Now, that wasn't going to happen just because we say it's going to happen or because we feel we want to offer that service. It's only going to happen if you yeah, genuinely uh, providing an environment for that to happen. So the Moroccan super back of house was um, the, the political or, or the uh, commitment for me as a business owner was to create a space and an environment where women were validated and women were enabled to transition from crisis or disadvantage to independence. Um, the front of house was also to offer up an environment where everybody was afforded dignity and respect no matter who they were, whether you were man, woman, non-gender binary, First Nations, um, and also, um, unconventionally speaking, it was a commitment to the environment where we didn't use plastic, polystyrene, we recycled, we composted, we had solar panels. So all those things for me, the Moroccan Super embodied a responsible um, expression of business, however unconventional it was. And for me, social and community justice was a perspective. It wasn't an added extra to running a business. It was part and parcel, foundational part of running a business. And in doing that, we wanted it to be relatable and more personal. So, you know, very early on we had a spoken menu. There wasn't a written menu like most places. Uh, we sat at people's tables and interacted. There was not the medium of the printed menu where it created a, a less personal environment. We introduced the idea of communal eating, people being together and, and learning to engage with the issues of the day, I guess, at the time. And 23 years later, it, it kind of grew into you know, where I felt like I'm the surrogate aunt of, of a community and responsible for advocating the causes unapologetically and however at times uh, intimidating and scary it was, felt I needed to take a stand on a whole host of issues because I felt the expectation from our community over 22 years, 23 years, that that you would say something and if I didn't say something, who's going to, you know, mm. like, and, and examples of that was when, and a few things kind of happened in the background that where I found myself just all of a sudden making a public announcement over dinner where the same-sex marriage debate was happening and a young boy came in in tears and he was crying and I'm just going, what, what, what is it? And I'd seen this boy before he was born. And he had rainbow parents and, and he said, at school today there was a sign in the sky saying vote no. And I just went, really, that's terrible. So I grabbed the ball, <laughs> went ding, ding, ding in the middle of dinner service. I'm going, oh, my God, I don't know what I'm going to say. So I had everybody's attention and had to say something. And that, that young boy, and all I said was, 
And again, intuitively, you know, because these are your convictions. So, yes, it's not rehearsed and, yes, there's no script for it and, you know, all of that stuff, but at the same time, you walk your talk. These are your values. So you know how to express them, um, albeit in a very intimidating environment. So most people are silent looking at me and I said, uh, welcome to the Moroccan Soup Bar and um, today, you know, we're, we as a society are having a conversation about same-sex marriage and... Um, and I understand many of you have many opinions about it, but I'm here to tell you, if you want to be afforded dignity and respect, no matter your views, you need to afford others dignity and respect. No matter what you think, you can think no, but you must vote yes. <laughs> and, then, and so most people kind of were, they just paused for a minute and then they stood up and erupted and clapped. And this young boy stood a little taller. He mm. felt like somebody understood what was right. And I think that is the sort of stuff that the Moroccan super has become known for, that, yeah, we serve food and we serve good vegetarian food and back of house we employ these women and we transition them and we put solar panels up and whatever. But the more the world changed around us, the more the environment changed and the more the environment became less compassionate and less humane, the more we shifted to the right the more I felt the responsibility to preserve and be a refuge and a safe haven for the values that are important to us and to our community. So, yes, I find myself doing crazy stuff, like in the middle of dinner service, you know, making announcements about same-sex marriage, about Islam, about uh, environmental stuff, about asylum seekers, about the virus, whatever it is. And, you know, it almost so much so that, people kind of go, is she going to say something today? Because they don't know. And it just really depends on, you know, and I don't I do not do it and I'm not just unconventional for the sake of uh, being, you know, contrary or it is when the occasion calls for it and when you see the injustice and when you see the injustice so much so um, expressed at the highest level at the highest level in this government and the government is then silent on people like Pauline Hansen and Christensen and Bernardi and whoever else may have been in. Um, and these aren't individual views. These are views which hurt and they mm. hurt and they give signal and they signal to community members and to individuals in communities what is acceptable and what is not. So you can't as governments do the double speak. On the one hand, we say, oh, yeah, we're about human rights and social justice, yet at the same time, everything we're doing, our behaviour is contrary to those values. And I find, as a, as a business owner, and certainly over the years, I've become, um, no matter how I feel internally, I've, I've made a commitment and this is who I am and these are my values and I hope people continue to resonate with them, but they're not going to change that people don't resonate with them, that these are values that I believe make for a better world, a more humane and compassionate and kinder world. And at the moment, with all the noise around us, and, you know, we touched on earlier around freedom of speech and freedom of expression and that, you know, it's a free country and everybody's allowed to say what they want to say and, and, and that has become such a dangerous phenomenon when it's coupled with... Uh, the rise of uh, extremism and, and the right bigotry and hate and you want to give that free reign, no. If you claim to be a society that 
seeks to preserve the the rights and dignity of its citizenship. If you claim to be a society that is multicultural, if you claim to be a society that cares for First Nations and for environment, then your rhetoric and the rhetoric that you give legitimacy to has to match that claim. You cannot Of course you can, and people do. I'm not saying I need to censor or silence you, but what I'm saying is those views need to be contested and put to bed by governments who claim that their governance is about multiculturalism and certain values. Now, when that is not happening, we find ourselves as individuals, whether we're in business, we're teachers, we work for governments, we walk in the streets, it doesn't matter we find ourselves compelled to defend those very values that others are compromising. And that is how I've found the Moroccan super has forged its own kind of place in our community and has become such a place so much so that whenever there's an issue, people kind of go, is she going to say something today? And, yeah, she does often. <laughs> but So the social values stand alongside the values of hospitality. And for me, they're part and parcel, that they are so interrelated you cannot extract one from the other. And that is the business model of the Moroccan super always has been. It has never been a business model built on uh, monetary objectives and then all these other issues are secondary. It's always been about a vision of the world and offering up an expression that, Yes, it's still, by any measure, a successful business, but it's all these other things that are the very fibre or fabric of what makes the vibe of the Moroccan super. That's a long answer. There you go. No, it's incredible, and there's there's so much to touch on it. I know we will get to each of those individual points, but you've, you've now actually gone from beginning a business that has as its pillars as the purpose to not only be profit or business or good food it's it's beyond that and you've and you've done that and you and you did that from the start which gives you an ability to stand tall when you are delivering speeches in front of everyone to say you know what I, this is what i'm saying and what i believe because i've i've done this i've done the hard yards i've 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 lifted people up without screaming down the throats of government or my my people in my restaurant but and it wasn't enough just to to help all these people silently, I've got to actually now have a voice and give others a voice and, and empower people. And, and you and you've done that. And now you're going to your next step uh, again with like a themed restaurant. You, you, you know, the Moroccan yeah. Super is transforming again yeah. physically. Yeah. Uh, can yeah. you tell us about the the different rooms on offer and yeah. the new experience diners will have? Obviously, you know, COVID. Who knew? And and the reality is we should have. We should have seen this coming. And if we were paying attention to the climate, to our destruction of nature and encroaching on wildlife and the animal world and the inevitability of cross-contamination and viruses, we should have seen this coming. With that said, nobody knew and nobody saw this coming in this way. Now, whilst it's had some devastating impact on hospitality, on the arts, on many um, many of the social institutions that I think ensure and, and are the cohesion and the glue that keeps societies intact, things like the arts and hospitality, and especially in Melbourne, um, whilst they've been devastated, and, yes, the government kind of stepped in and tried to keep some of us afloat through JobKeeper and whatever it is, 
But at the same time, for a business like ours, it was about our very autonomy. It was our, our very legitimacy because we existed as a self-sustaining satellite almost. We didn't need to be legitimated by anybody. We, we did our quirky thing and people kind of liked it and the more people accepted us, the more we gave of ourselves tenfold. So we, we existed not needing banks and, and governments and anybody else, yet COVID hit and all of a sudden... I had 40 staff members, 40 women, some of whom were entitled to government financial support, but some weren't. And we were at the mercy of a landlord who went, "Eh, yeah, okay. You know, the reality is I'll excuse you for a month or two, but you either pay or go. Um, And we're a business that's always been hand to mouth. Not, not out of naivety, out of a commitment to our community. So we run a whole host of events like Speed Data Muslim and we, you know, where we create a sense of community cohesion through commitment to different initiatives and we run a lot of stuff for free because we want to because these are, this is our, our expression, conversation salons, stuff like that. So we found ourselves kind of desperately trying to protect the staff and keep them safe whilst I closed before, whilst governments were still signalling, you should, you can shake hands, we can have the NRL, we can have the Grand Prix. I just went, oh, my goodness, I deal with some of the most vulnerable sections of community and we were looking to overseas with what was unfolding and I thought if that devastation came here where Italy was making a decision about who they treat and who they don't, I thought the reality is we will not be treating the women who can't afford medical care, the women who are on the margins. We're going to treat the people who, you know, for all intents and purposes. So I felt that uh, increased responsibility in ensuring that they are healthy, they are safe, they are well protected, as well as our community. I mean, we're a place where people are on top of each other. So I closed. I closed mid-March, way before anybody else, um, because it wasn't safe to open. Now, with that, obviously, uh, landlords then went pay or go, and I think I was devastated for a day. After 23 years, I went, really, mate? Like, so, yes, you know, I had to kind of look around and thought, this is where your values matter right now, and your values are not about material world or attachment to the material or a building. Your values go wherever you go. It's okay. Yes, I was sad because... I mean, 23 years in the same place. It's like more than my home. And anyway, so we packed up and I went, take your place. And then decided at that point with five of the staff members that are looking at me going, are we going to be okay? And they didn't get JobKeeper or JobSeeker and some of them were on strange visas um, and there was nowhere else to send them. The whole society had shut down around us. You couldn't even send them to a place for support. And they're looking at me going, are we going to be okay? And that was probably the turning point for me. I just thought I can feign confidence here. We can absolutely and we will be okay. So I looked at them and I said, yep, we'll be okay. Internally not knowing, are we how? How do we be okay? And at the same time, you dig deep and you come back to who you are. And at that point when you, where hospitality needs to support the healthcare workers, we need to be communal. So we did a campaign supporting a pay-it-forward campaign supporting healthcare workers, blah, blah, blah. 
and at the same time trying to reimagine what is the Moroccan super for today. Not that formula of people on top of each other, communal eating, that is gone. And I accepted that, I guess, way before anybody else. I accepted that that was a reality. The whole formula no longer works. Okay, so he asked us to leave, but the formula itself has to change. So for me it was about how do we still have a conversation about what are the foundational issues for us moving forward through COVID and forward. COVID is not going anywhere. There will be variations and mutations and there will be other COVIDs and whatever. How do we, um, in the here and now, not be defined by the crisis but define how we want to respond to it? And this is who we are, the eternal optimist. We're agile. Life has absolutely trained us to um, deal with adversity and for that I'm thankful. So came back and thought, okay, so the Moroccan super, what does it look like in this day and age? And so I came back to defining five pillars and the five future pillars for the Moroccan super are unequivocally speaking to and advocating the climate crisis and that if you're not, no matter your political leanings, and I think governments play politics with these issues, the climate crisis is a responsibility for everybody and from my view and certainly from the Moroccan super perspective, it's about re-engaging the agency of our communities. We can no longer leave our livelihood at the hands of governments who play politics with these issues. How do we refocus locally, refocus all our energy on our local community, strengthen it, re-engage agency and knowledge and understanding of the issues? With that, I designed five different dining rooms. Each of the rooms engages not only with the food, the best Moroccan vegetarian food, I dare say, in Melbourne, but also with the social justice issues around the themes of those rooms. And, and the themes are there's the garden room, whose theme is the climate emergency, and all of us learning to be allies to First Nations people. If we cannot get that foundation right, nothing's going to change. And when I say being allies to First Nations people, we are in no way sitting here going, we know what's right for them. Far from it. What I'm saying is governments have had over two centuries in dilly-dallying and the paternalistic interventions and playing politics with the issue of First Nations people, that unless the community becomes an ally, there's not going to be enough pressure on governments. So we want to create allyship as part of our communities so that we can support the self-determination of First Nations people. And the way to do that is that we have to create that level of awareness and not leave it to the hysteria that's often whipped up by governments around every Australia Day, Invasion Day, and or pay the rent, they're going to come take your house, and whatever nonsense. We want to be able to, over dinner, without being politically heavy, invite people to understand the history of this country, that it is built on a chequered past, it is built on a history of continued colonisation, and it is built, and that is our truth. And I'm not saying we did it, but I'm saying we all have a responsibility to changing that by being allies. Part of that is we invite people to pay $1 per diner 
and it goes towards our pay the rent in our alliance with First Nations. But it also, we do quizzes and conversation starters about, you know, what's one thing we can all do? Um, who are your local kind of country people? Uh, what's one thing we can do about the climate? Um, how do we understand the difference between native, native plantations and or other foreign stuff? All those kind of conversations and quizzes through games and a bit of humour happen in our garden room. Upstairs, there's a salon, there's a women's room, there's a kitchen and there's a boudoir. And, and these themes were chosen deliberately around what I thought was necessary conversations during COVID, during the lockdown. So, yes, the garden room about the climate crisis being allies to First Nations. The salon room is about all those formal settings so the salon, formally, all the formal settings where we find ourselves partaking in the formal etiquette and we disagree with it, but our silence ensures that we uphold that social consensus. So how do we invite individuals who dine in that space? If something's not right, how do you call it out without feeling intimidated? How do you call it out if you're at a citizenship ceremony and, you know, and there's no mention of First Nations people? Or if you're at your grandmother's 25th wedding anniversary and the Mardi Gras in the background, people making fun of it? Or whatever it is, that the formality of the societal etiquette that upholds inequality we all have a role to activate our agency if it's not right and we want to write a different future, it's about what we do today. Stop waiting for governments. Stop waiting for local councils and laws and regulations. It is about how we decide as citizens, as communities. So that's the thinking behind it. The women's room, so that's the third room, the women's room simply celebrates all things women. And it is about leaning into this conversation that there's a lot of rhetoric. You remember I talked a little bit about there's uh, the double speak. Governments kind of say, oh, yeah, we want gender equity, gender parity, respect for women, no, 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 no. But everything we're signalling is the opposite of that. When, when our Prime Minister puts his hand in the hand of uh, Trump and says, we share our values, we share your values, mm -hmm. we, you are our friend, that is giving mixed messages to, to community, to men and women. So we want to be able to say if we are truly about that rhetoric, if it's not to be hollow, we've got to change our behaviour. And why is it that as a society we know readily people like Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi, Eddie Mabo, we should know them absolutely and we should celebrate them. But their counterparts in women, it's not like they didn't exist. September Clark, Traganini, Queenie Dickenzie, Fatima Manisi, Arundhati Roy, Angela Dayton. I mean, the list is endless. Why don't we know these women unless we study them? And that is telling of how a system kind of puts to the, to the side or the margins the contribution of women. So I want to invite those who dine in the women's uh, reading room to learn to celebrate the women in our world the grandmothers, the mothers, the aunts, the partners, potentially the kids of the future. And this is a way to do it. This is one way of doing it. It's one way of saying, yes, it's not judging that these are bad values, these are good values, but how do we walk them? How do we ensure that our behaviour matches up with those values? And this is one way of kind of 
you know, getting to know who these amazing, crazy, extraordinary women are and have been and will be in the future. The next room is the kitchen. Now, in my observation, over the past probably two decades, food has become synonymous with Instagram shots, celebrity nonsense, chefing, and, you know, at, at times it may as well be a piece of art that you should hang on a wall. And, and great. What I'm suggesting is food, if you cut through all that and demystify it, food is about nutrition and should be about nutrition, particularly for us we're vegetarian and plant-based foods and um, that you want to be able to show that, you know, you can do extraordinarily creative things with food and we relearn some of the basics. So in the kitchen we will teach people how to throw some ingredients together, make a meal, and also how some of those spaces are at the heart of the transmission of oral traditions. They used to happen around kitchens mm. and family values were learned, community values were learned. The last room uh, is the boudoir or the bedroom. Now, that, that was a bit tricky for me in, and in all honesty, it happened in a lockdown. And I thought the debate was with me and myself. There was no one else around and I was on both sides of the debate going, is it too far? Is it a step too far to sit people in a bedroom and feed them and have a conversation about the stuff of bedrooms? Obviously I did it, so it, it wasn't a step too far. And the reason for me is the issue of intimacy. Now, at the moment and certainly for the past probably, you know, eight years, five to eight years, we as a society, as a community, have been having a conversation about intimacy in a very polarised and divisive way, that we do it in a way that women push back against men and toxic masculinity, men push back against that pushback in not knowing how to be, and there's no real room beyond that very polarised, attacking, accusing way to pause for a moment and to consider respectfully what does healthy intimacy look like? What does it look like beyond a society that conditions men and boys to have entitlement over women and girls' bodies and women and girls to internalise that message and reinforce it, mothers to children, partners to partners? How do we imagine redefining intimacy beyond that destructive dynamic? I wanted us to be able to have that conversation and have it respectfully and have it together where we define it over dinner, absolutely, through games and whatever it is that we're doing. So, yes, the new concept of the Moroccan Super is one of absolute social responsibility and absolute preservation of the very values that are important to re-engaging the agency of individuals in our community, reinvesting heavily in the next generation who are going to fix this mess and preserving what I believe to be a necessary ally to justice, and that is facts, truth. These things matter and they're not a matter of opinion. So it's an invitation for our community, hopefully, to resonate with this quirky new concept and it's COVID safe because these are small, separate, contained rooms. You don't put everybody together, but you also have an opportunity to separately engage in all these different issues. So that was the thinking and, um, you know, out of that I just thought, okay, why not? And here we are three months later and 
I just finished renovating the last dining room, you know, in fact, as late as an hour ago. So we'll see what happens. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, congratulations for getting it done sort of near Christmas and holiday season, tradies off, just out of lockdown, all of these things to get that done. And you said you only, yeah. you know, you grieve for a day basically and then you're on your feet again and, and ready to push forward. That's that's resilience, you know. That's that's yeah. something to to celebrate for sure. And, and, look, it is now, it is in a crisis that your values matter. They They don't matter when when they're simple, when when they're just words, they're hollow words and you're just sitting there talking about social justice and whatever. They matter when when the test is before you, when when there is no instruction manual, when uh, you're having to make sense of the world and navigate and reinvent, that's when they matter. And, and, and I mean, I just go back to how extraordinarily lucky we are that however inadequate the governments have been, that we are you know, in the scheme of things, so lucky that we're able to reinvent and still have an opportunity to lean into the values that are important to us, uh, that we're not, you know, so destitute and struggling to uh, the high stakes of trying to find your next meal and, you know, so stuff like that. And and I, I'm somebody who thinks the next generation, and I can't say enough about them, that they, they're not shackled by the same... Um, concepts of prejudice in the same way my generation are, that you don't have to sit there and convince them of racism, of the environmental crisis, mm. of First Nations dispossession. They know and they're intersectional just as a matter of being. And they go, okay, so we know that. How do we fix it? Whereas with my generation you have to go, oh, yeah, and tread carefully and maybe and will you consider that racism is a thing? That for them, it's like, yeah, it's a thing, let's fix it. From there, I feel if we offer them platforms, they will be the solution to this mess. And I've noticed your optimism shine through a few times here, and that's an optimistic thought too. So to think that our future is in the right hands and yeah. we have to activate our agency once again to then actually deliver that platform and, and ensure that they're able to dive in of a platform that's, that's ready for them. Absolutely. And, look, I, again, a, a lot of people say, are you pro-Dan against Dan? Are you pro-this against this? Pro-young, pro-old? I I'm, I don't think of the world in that dichotomous kind of us, them, good, bad, right, wrong. I, I think um, the young are extraordinary in their capacity to be the solution. And when coupled with the wisdom of, of some of us who've walked this journey, I think magic can happen and I think communities can re-engage um, and not only our agency but begin to make different decisions and put different pressures on governments. And one basic example, and I will never say it in a way that's patronising, when I was a bit younger, or quite a bit younger, um, I used to go to these events called Reclaim the Night, you know, and they were for women reclaiming the streets to be safe at night and part of that, we always turned, ended up at sex shops and club X's and stuff, and we wanted to smash in those because the symbolism of them is about objectifying women mm. and blah, blah, blah. And now that I'm older, I think, what about the women in there? What about the people in there? So it's simply it's, it's the nuance and the complexity and the shade of grey that come with the wisdom of years. So if, if those that are younger can walk in and alongside those 
who have also walked that journey and share those values, I, I think that is the strength of movements of the future, allies bringing people together. I fear this lack of nuance in the world. I, I, I despair at times about the dichotomy that you speak of, this idea of black and white, this idea of, well, even with feminism at times, you know, as a man it's sometimes difficult to navigate yeah. the world of are we empowering sexuality and sex shops as a, you know, we can talk about sex toys and things like that in intimacy mm-hmm. versus you know, these being male inventions that, you know, pornography has, you know, ensured that it becomes a, a symbol of ownership over someone. And it's the same item. You're looking at a, a yes. sex toy or a sex shop and that nuance that occurs. And same with racism, the Black Lives Matter protests. There are people on those marches doing it for the right reasons and then there are people that maybe lack a perspective of the fear or the the margins that other people may be on that are guided towards from poverty into an extreme right wing ideal that we need to somehow understand. We we can never say that it's okay, but but you know understand. So where this nuance uh, has yeah. to be involved in that room that you mentioned, the intimacy room is is one that I think um, you know relates to that. But for me, that fear that I see the world this dichotomy on all ends. I think it begins when you understand and you can hold yourself in those values that we speak of, but within has to start first, doesn't it? There has to be an awakening within where you have some wisdom, you have some experience, some knowledge or some certainty, maybe courage or a lack of insecurity. I don't know what the word is, but there's something that you've got to have that makes you activate that agency and then you can start walking in the world and making it a better place, hopefully. So you've got a journey of your own that you were able to eventually activate your agency. I, I don't know how much you want to go into it, but if you can um, explain some of your process from being someone that probably didn't have as much agency as, and, and for good reason, you know, there was a lifetime of experience that you've had into someone that grew from within and then had that agency to do the brilliant things you're doing now. Maybe that'll mm. give some context for people that you aren't this privileged yeah. person starting a business, that you are someone that's, <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you've, you've started from the from the ground, yeah. Uh, so, uh, look, I mean, there's a, there's a few things in there. Just the how do we make ourselves and causes relatable, and how do we not judge others uh, whilst trying to understand um, points of view that may differ to ours uh, that we find even abhorrent at times or whatever it is. And so I'll come back to that in a minute. And my personal journey, I guess, whilst violence and trauma has shaped a lot of my developmental years as a young child from sexual abuse to then, you know, being married at a very young age to a, you know, a profoundly violent man and all that sort of stuff. And then for me... I guess where I feel lucky is that um, whilst these things have shaped my normal and they have been my normal, they've also given me insight into the capacity to connect with people and ensure that it doesn't have to be anybody else's normal. And at the same time, um, my extraordinary privilege has been that conventions, when I say, you know, social etiquette and conventions and proper behaviour and being silent when, uh, you know, you're in a setting that conventions have not served me well 
conventions, in fact, have been a source of abuse for me. So with that, my survival has meant I can challenge conventions. And it's meant that um, what was at stake for me in challenging conventions was my very survival. So in doing that, and what I mean by that is I was able to call stuff out because if I didn't, the alternative for me would have been to, you know, to be at the hands of somebody that was potentially going to kill me or hurt me or harm me. So I consider my upbringing, although, you know, shaped by trauma, definitely a privilege in, and I don't mean that in a wanky way, I I consider it uh, that it's given me the insight into being able to understand experientially what it means and to ensure that I can advocate that nobody should live through that and that you can bring people together. So for me, my quest isn't to blame. I'm not a victim of society where I feel the world owes me something. I simply recognise this is part of my journey and with it and with that experience, I'm able to bring people together to transition and shift some thinking and make some of the causes relatable because I've lived those experiences. And from there, my commitment to women and supporting women who have left and lived through some of those uh, experiences comes from me and comes from having been through that myself and, and wanting to give some of those women alternate opportunities to make different decisions so they can have different outcomes. So that's the backstory of the Moroccan soup bar and why it is that we do what we do. But at the same time, having developed uh, a more nuanced understanding of the world as we grow up and as we understand and begin to place layer upon layer of perspectives and understand how the world works and, and the profound systems of inequality and how they manifest, you also make a decision that, For someone like me, what makes me tick in my currency is social and community justice. That is what makes me happy. For somebody else, it may be, you know, just accumulating money, and that's fine. I'm not judging it. I'm simply saying that for me, these are the issues that give me meaning. And in in engaging with those issues, um, and the more you can broaden your understanding and bring together causes and whilst ultimately and for me the ultimate belief is there are two things I want to touch on one is it's always on the discretion or the responsibility of those on the margins always to take those that are more privileged on a journey if we want to pretend otherwise then I think we're just pretending to ourselves and, and to everybody else rarely does a system of privilege itself seek to change and give over its privilege really it is almost always the activism from those on the margins, whatever they their marginal circumstances may be, gender, class, sexuality, ethnicity, doesn't matter. Enough push and enough allyship is created to then um, invite the system to consider changing and progressing. So those on the margins do a lot of the heavy lifting, always. And for me, having occupied those spaces, and in many respects, many of them, Um, gender, sexuality, 
on Muslim um, and Islamophobia and trying to understand what that means, having been married, all of those issues, and sexual abuse and blah, blah, blah. So I understand margins and have lived on the margins even within families because I'm not conventional by any means. I've also, as I've grown up and matured, understood that social justice is a perspective. It cannot be cause-specific. It cannot just be about advocating one cause at the cost of putting others down. It just can't. That it needs to be to lift everybody. And the more you lift the most vulnerable, the more everybody else benefits. Um, So with that, I guess... With that backdrop and that history, I've, I've felt, you know, the, the, the privilege of being able to navigate and bring people and make our causes relatable. So I feel like I'm a bridge that constantly doesn't judge those who don't think like us. I don't and will never judge. Um, in fact, I actually understand why and how racism works, sexism prejudice and and those that are marginalised and and systems and how they operate and manifest, I understand that really, really well. And I understand that underneath people are decent. Most people, in fact, and if I didn't start from that premise, I would not be doing what I'm doing. 99, no, 98% of people. I'll I'll put Trump and, you know, there's probably a handful of people who, um, and even then, no, rarely is somebody just totally, completely evil, horrible human being. Most people are decent. Some, as we were saying earlier, um, have opportunity in in their privilege and, and there's no incentive to give it over. Some are ignorant, some are afraid of difference. Some, and so there's a whole host of reasons why systems are upheld and people manipulated by those systems through media and whatever. But... It is not because people are bad that they vote Trump or vote Boris Johnson or whoever it is that we don't agree with. It is simply because, and this is what I think, um, and it's taken us back full circle to the conversation we started with, that the biggest threat to our humanity moving forward is not uh, capitalism and sexism. It, It is absolutely disinformation. The fact that we can no longer come together and reason and have a reasonable conversation, Um, the fact that we live in these self-kind-of-sustaining little silos where um, to the point that I I just want to tear my hair out, I just think, how could you be, how could you tell me that's a cow? It's not a cow, it's a bottle of water. I mean, if you cannot have the capacity to communicate where facts are preserved, and truth matters, then you cannot have justice, you cannot have harmony, and you cannot have peace. And that is what worries me, that we, and particularly for this younger generation, that they are raised and born into a world with uh, so much noise and so much disinformation that it's really hard to, to navigate and make sense of how do you bring people together, and that's why, for me, the place like the Moroccan Super, where people come together and these conversations can happen and this platform can exist, however weird and however small it is, it is a tangible platform where we do proudly uh, offer refuge to those values and that those values are expressed in arts. And, yes, I invite artists to come and do spoken word. I'll do games and quizzes and and random kind of announcements and whatever. 
around those values in order to engage and stimulate conversation to keep that. Um, is it going to change the world? There are certainly, you know, every day it changes me a little bit and mm. every day I'm more optimistic when I look at one person and the penny drops. That's all it needs. And each person will then, you know, ripple effect out and the way of the future is with individuals. It's not with, you know, big status, celebrity. It, it is with investing in the individual and investing in allies and in communities. That's what I believe. But, you know, we'll get there. How, how do we know that's right? I, I agree with you and I think it's true. And, and I yeah. try to articulate to this to the people in my life that believe that the cow is a drink mm. bottle. I, yeah. I, I, I don't actually the disinformation is now so strong that they believe that I am someone that's a playing victim to disinformation, that, you know, what we yeah. thought was normal is yeah. not normal. So information yeah. no longer works and I try to get to that value level. But even then mm. it's mm. like, of course, we love people. But, you know, what you're not seeing is that there is this, you know, underground lizard people that are, you know, uh, conspiracy versus the Jews or the blacks or the, uh, you know, whatever yeah. it might be. And it's like, no, okay, but it's, let's, yeah. it's a, because it comes from a place of love at times of, of their own yeah. tribe or whatever, of fear. How do you know that you're on the right track and, and where do you begin? Where do you do that like Descartes moment? You know, I think therefore yeah. I am. He went to the baseline to figure it out. Where was your baseline? Look, you, you can't force people. You cannot force somebody to think like you. You cannot force them. Um, and I think you have to accept that ultimately, that different people, life is ultimately a perspective and how we interpret and perceive things is what gives all of us meaning. Um, the way I deal with it is not to, um, not to attack and not to undermine and not to debate. If somebody's telling me that's a cow and I believe it's a water bottle, what I've learned to do is to say, okay, so let's for a moment say here's your cow and I'm just going to leave it on the side for a minute and I want you now to consider the water bottle. I'm not attacking your cow. I'm not getting rid of your cow. I'm not uh, denying or disputing because I think often most of our conversation is butting up against is it a cow or a water bottle? You have to be able to, if you want them to even begin, if you want to build bridges, you've got to be able to say, okay, it's a cow for all intents and purposes, here's a cow. How about we consider this water bottle? And where and the, when I say it's the margins that have to uh, relate to those more, unfortunately, the people that believe it's a cow are the majority at the moment. Because when you look around all of society, there, there is no meaning. There is no meaning beyond the material, the noise, the, the uh, simplistic, sensational uh, kind of propaganda uh, where nothing is meaningful. I mean, we don't debate uh, religion. We don't debate philosophy. We don't value interrogation of information. We don't do any of that. So it's been replaced by consumerism. And it's been replaced by a media who, whose interests are served in keeping that noise alive. Now, it's not to say these people are bad. To me, I just go back to you have to invite people to consider what you're offering. You cannot. And the more you debate, 
the less inroads you make. What you need to be able to say is, okay, and, and they have to be able to feel validated before you get anywhere. So it's a little bit, I know we're talking about facts and, and uh, dichotomies, but it's a little bit psychological as well. You've got to be able to say, okay, I, and this is where someone like Trump was such a con artist, and that is why he got the votes he did, not because these people are bad. Trump spoke to a profound anxiety that people were having. People were anxious because for too long we said things like the climate crisis is real, oh, my God, this is a six-mass extinction, the world is going to end, blah, blah, blah. So people were anxious for, for ten, a decade at least. Yet governments were dilly-dallying, not doing anything about it. And what happens in the community and public psyche is anxiety begins to lift. The second big thing was terrorism. Oh, my God, these terrorists, they're going to come and they're bombing the shit out of America and the Muslims are doing this. So we upped that anti, that rhetoric. Um, not much was happening about it. We were sending soldiers and they were kind of coming back and we weren't making any inroads about that and we keep talking about the threat of terrorism, blah, blah, blah. The other big thing, um, migrants are taking over and they're a threat to the world and la, 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 la. So Donald Trump came in and he went, and this is why he's a con artist and this is why he works. He went, okay, what is making people anxious? Forget all the logic. When people are anxious, logic doesn't work. Mm. Logic does not resonate. If I'm anxious, you need to calm my anxiety before you can engage my intelligence. And this is what Trump did. He went... What are you upset about? The climate? I'm going to rip up the climate agreement. There you go. He spoke to the anxiety, mm -hmm. even though it wasn't rational because the anxiety is not rational. He said, I'm going to rip up the agreement. And people went, yeah, Trump. What, what else is upsetting you? The Muslims? I'm going to ban them. What else is upsetting you? The Mexicans? Man, we're going to build a wall. So he started making these outlandish things that simply spoke to the anxiety of people, the community anxiety, that's why people resonated with Trump. He was not a, a champion of the poor. He exploited the poor. And that's how he made his millions. But And he even said it. He said, I can walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I'll still be voted in. Why? Because he knew psychologically he is speaking, he's not speaking to rationality and intelligence. No. He's speaking to the, the social anxiety of people. And governments have whipped up that anxiety so much so, but they haven't calmed it. They haven't managed to calm that anxiety. All they've done is create it, create it, create it, and it has no outlet, not through education, not through religion. Religion hasn't caught up. Religion's been caught up in bloody pedophilia and dogma and abuses. It hasn't caught up with society and where society is at. Philosophy hasn't caught up, so people don't have meaning. They've got nothing other than constant anxiety, and then Trump comes along and he goes, damn, I got this. And uh, the con artist, that's, I mean, the world was his oyster. It was his playing field. He knew how to play it because that's who he is. So it is not the disenfranchised fault that Trump is in. It is not those losers who, you know, their Second Amendment right to carry arms. It's because they exist in a system that's actually fueled and created that level of anxiety that Trump spoke to. So when you understand that, you're better able to relate to these people and not judge them for being moronic and just Trump voters. 
Do you know what so I mean? Society failed them. Governments That's failed it. them. And and that is Absolutely. true for the white people in the Midwest as it is for the asylum seeker, as it is for the, yeah. the Muslim person that has come into a country for freedom and then is targeted with attacks. Yes. For the, Mexican for the, yes. the woman that is wanting more rights for the ex yes. the person that's come from a generation of slaves that thinks I'm I'm ready for a rebirth and and for my existence to be valid all of these people yeah. have been failed over time yeah. and we yeah. wonder why why they're anxious and depressed you know yeah but there's but there is one thing and I think I hear it being discussed a lot at the moment and that is about freedom of speech and freedom of the ability to say what you want, the ability to think what you want, blah, blah, blah. And I think it is such a dangerous phenomenon to conflate hate speech with free speech, that these are two distinctly different things, that uh, freedom of speech has to be about constantly being mindful of what your values are as a society, as a community, as a government, um, and that freedom of speech is about we regulate everything. We regulate crossing the road, that there's a little white, you know, yellow, amber flashing light because it is about the common good. And in the same way, freedom of expression, there is no absolute freedom. You have a responsibility. You absolutely do. Whenever you occupy a public speaking platform to uphold the values of that public platform. You have that responsibility. You cannot jump up and down and go, oh, it's my right, yeah, it's your right, in your lounge room, in the privacy of your own home, in the privacy of your own thoughts, think what you like. The minute you express that publicly and the minute that expression begins to harm others and is contrary to the values of that governance, then no, you don't, you give over and you forfeit that right because you're not following up with your responsibility. The problem with that is that this government hasn't been able to articulate that message, that in the beginning when Pauline Hanson 15 years ago came along, everybody ridiculed her. They thought she was ridiculous. 15 years later, they talk about her as a legitimate slice of public opinion. No, she's not. And this is where we have conflated a whole host of issues and we can't see past and through the maze of um, giving free reign and unleashing bigotry and hate is not free speech. In fact, we've seen what that's done in the past and a society and a governance is responsible to govern according to the values that you claim at least. So, no, there is no free speech on every public platform. Free speech according to the, the values. If you are allowing publicly your senators or whoever else to, um, you know, to vilify certain groups, then that is what your governance is about, surely. You, you have to accept that you as a nation are bigoted. You can't say, oh, no, 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 we're not. We're all these things. But that is just an individual. No, everything has consequences. You, you know, and I think the way of the future, I'm not into censorship, but I am into social media has become another platform, another public platform, and it has to be treated the way you treat any other public platform. Uh, the House of Parliament, social media, wherever you are, if you can say that there, you can say that there. And otherwise, you say absolutely that there are consequences. I mean, I can't. There are many things I don't want to say even, but 
even if I wanted to say them, I can't say them because I live in a world with other people and I have a responsibility for how what I say impacts others. And surely that is the set of values we want to be able to promote as a multicultural society. So free speech, hate speech, that conversation will kind of go around and around and around in circles unless those at the leadership position can guide it through some semblance of intelligent kind of conversation. And if they don't, we will at a local level. We just do, certainly at the Moroccan Super. Oh, for sure. I, I, I was writing something. I've just got it in front of me. Those on the far right are not evil. They are overcome by the grief of reality. And you and you hit the nail on the head for me then with the climate crisis, you know, however many years of hearing about it and nothing being done. It's either yeah. you you become, let that anxiety run over you, You there yeah. is a third option other than the let the anxiety run over you or deny it. There is having agency and actually trying to make a difference. And isn't that right? So that there's the, and maybe that's very difficult for many people, especially in the midst of anxiety or in the midst of grief and depression. It, it is difficult to awaken that that agency to talk to your member of parliament, to become a member of parliament, to open a, a business that is selling things that are waste free or you know carbon neutral, or to change your bank or whatever you need to do to try to do incremental steps of change. That agency has to be awakened somehow. So if there's someone listening now that is in the midst of this anxiety and grief and they're like, you know, you're right, I I deny that the world was round because that was Mm. easier than accepting the world we've got in front of us. But Mm. I'm, but if I can't, what am I going to do? How do I... How do I move on from this? What am I going to do? What 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 would you say to an individual? Uh, look, I think uh, ultimately it, it's about also being kind to yourself and self-soothing. Like I think, and there's no such thing as I can't. The, the fact that we draw breath, the, the fact that uh, we take the next step, the fact that we get up every morning, I mean, with it comes the opportunities uh, never imagined before. You, you're as limited as your imagination around this stuff. And if you listen to the outside world and the messaging it's giving you, of course it'll tell you you can't. But if you listen to yourself and your internal barometer, that will tell you, of course, you can and you must. So to me, each individual Uh, each individual step we take, each individual agency we evoke, uh, each individual engagement where a sense of hope is had, that will create ripple effects. There is no magic Martin Luther King, Gandhi, whatever. We are that and we are that beginning with the belief in ourselves enough. For me, it's about coming back to looking inward rather than looking outward for status and how you measure your sense of self by how much money you have and what business you run or or whatever. We need to look inward and kind of not only self-soothe but also self-belief and that is your barometer and your compass. And then the next and important part is to form allies, find like-minded tribes, people, and this is why for me the Moroccan super. 
I guess, is a place where stuff like that happens, even if one other person connects with one other person and then those two people will connect with another two. And that is how we build communities and build change and build societies of change. So there is no such thing as impossible. The, the impossible, I mean, is going to happen for a long time when we're all dead. But whilst we're here and for the short time that we are here, the impossible is probable. And, you know, governments, governments need to start to worry when communities wake up, when people start to re-engage with their own power and capacity. That is when governments will start to get nervous. And I think the weapon of the future is education and information for people, accurate, factual information of their own their own capacity for change and to write and rewrite the future that they want, you know. So no such thing. Give me a call. If you're struggling, give me a call. I'll certainly, um, yeah, no, no, no. There's, um, I just think each person is extraordinary. I mean, look at ourselves. Look at our capacity not only to think but to then make a decision and follow it through and, um, you know, that is just extraordinary. And we just need to believe in ourselves enough to to be able to look at where we've come from, where we are and where we're going and just kind of take one step in front of the other. We'll get there. We will absolutely get there together in tribes. Choose your tribe, choose your community. Allyships are the way of the future. And the last thing I wanted to say is I know I waffle sometimes. This last bit I believe to be a little bit important. What I've become aware of is that the fault line that is running underneath society at the moment is not about gender or class or race or wealth or whatever, that the fault line is about a vision of the world that you want. And on the one hand, we've got all these people that are trying to reaffirm and reinforce a society that is profoundly unequal that is built on social inequality, gender inequality, racial inequality, where the few benefit from the many and exploit them. So that system as we've known it and there's um, and society is almost polarised, and this is globally, um, black, white, non-gender binary live in that world as well, yeah? It doesn't matter, men, women in trying to uphold the system that they know, that is a system of profound inequality. And the other side of the fault line is a people that for the first time where the world has never been so connected, minorities have never had such a voice, and our capacity to see and imagine a world of plurality and humanity and where we can afford dignity and respect for those less fortunate, where the privilege takes responsibility for those more vulnerable, where the vision of a world uh, matters, then that is where that fault line, that, that line of tension is between upholding the old world order or this new world order where there's a sense of unity, no matter who you are, man, woman, non-gender binary, um, and that you can recognise your privileges inside that vision and lean into the responsibility that comes with those privileges. That is, that is the fault line, that either you're on this side where you want to promote that world or you want to uphold the Trump, Bolsonaro, um, Scott Morrison, Johnson, that sort of world. You decide 
and and I think nobody's articulated it in that way enough for people to be able to go, this is what I want or this is what I want. And that is where we find our tensions with those we don't agree with because they don't think. They just go, oh, no, that's normal. No, it's not normal. No, yeah, maybe it was normal, but this new world is much more beautiful if we imagine it and enable it. But there's who's driving that vision? It's coming from communities, from the ground up. Uh, whereas the other vision is coming from governments and they're trying to push it down and superimpose it and they're bringing people with it and manipulating through media and whatever else. And I reckon from the ground up is is where the future is. You'll see. Incredible. I love that, uh, the, the story that you, you mentioned earlier, that we <laughs> need to fill ourselves with a story and, and that's what's missing in our world. And we've had a story once upon a time, potentially, whether that was our religion, whether that was our culture, our tribe, our family, whatever, and now that somehow has been lost and we're trying to fill that void with someone else's story, someone else's information, and we're just uh, eating it up without, you know, understanding the consequence. And um, by filling our hearts, I guess, with a story we truly want to believe in and then uh, doing everything in life based on that story, we're going to be in a better place for it. So it might be as simple as that. Look, absolutely. And... So ultimately, look inward for our story. Our story is within us. We're born with it. Uh, We just need to kind of, you know, find it again and it will be your barometer and certainly all of ours to navigate. It won't let you down. It's not there to harm you or control you or hurt you. And we're wired for the common good, surely, um, if we believe it enough. And just lastly, with the new version of the Moroccan Superbar, in fact, I called it the Moroccan Superbar and underneath Appetite for Change, whether people love it or not, that's, and, and change is coming and it's inevitable. Um, so why don't we define it? And for me, it, disengaging from government and from government regulations and, and the need to superimpose um, how we should relate to each other and what social values should be. It should be the other way around. Governments should govern according to social values, not the other way around. Society should determine how its governance is, not government imposed. And, and I think that's what we've lost. We've kind of we've got to subvert and flip that over again by re-educating people. I don't mean formal education at school, I mean re-engaging and finding platforms, however creative and weird and quirky, restaurants, the arts, bloody walking in the street, doesn't matter, reading, I don't know, busking, whatever it is you need to do, just engaging people with that old, you know, with that sense of optimism, a sense of hope and a sense of validating the voices inside of us that go, this is not okay, but I feel, you know, um, apathetic and um, powerless and... That's nonsense. That's the outside noise. Internally, you know, you you are the change, absolutely. Incredible. Hannah, before I let you go, uh, and uh, can you plug Moroccan Super? What's, we've done a, a fair bit about what it is, but how can people find it? It's in, we're in Melbourne, we're based in Melbourne, we know that. We're, where can people find you, contact you, and, you know, get involved? So the Moroccan Super is now 500 metres up the road from the old Moroccan Super. It's at 316 St George's Road, North Fitzroy. Uh, we open six days a week. 
you can get involved. You can hop on Facebook, our website. You can call us, 94863500, no matter your needs, no matter. And when I say no matter your needs, no matter what they are. Uh, if you're hungry for a meal or um, you're finding a sense of despair or and if we're not able to kind of just connect up with you, we can certainly refer you on to somebody who can. We often run many, many events, including events around, um, we've got one called the Global Unity Movement, where we unite underneath an umbrella of a vision of a better world and what our role is. We come together around the themes of some of those rooms, if we want to talk about feminism and what it means and how men ought to be and all of that stuff, or nutrition and food or whatever it is, the climate crisis, how to be allies to First Nation, we're always doing stuff because that is part of an awakened um, community. So reach out, come say hi, drop us a line, and whatever it is you need, hopefully you will find it in some of our spaces. And if not, we will find it for you. And thank you so much for being part of I Wouldn't Want to Be Anywhere Else. I think Melbourne is the social conscience of the country. And we are so lucky to, you know, um, for many, many reasons, given what's happening around the world, to, to have the opportunity to walk our talk and to be the change we want to see. And thank you. Thank you so much for allowing me to rant for a couple of hours. <laughs> yeah, it's been awesome. Thanks, mate. Oh, it's been my absolute pleasure. Before I let you go, I've got a question I ask all my guests at the end of the podcast, yes. which is the, the name of this podcast, Moments of Clarity. What has been a moment of clarity that you've had recently that you'd like to share with us today? Look, for me, it has been through the pandemic, in all honesty, that we were either going to be devastated by it and we were going to close the Moroccan soup bar and uh, it was going to be an end of an era and um, just be defined by it, or that, uh, for lack of a better word, the pivot, the, the reinventing. And that to me came from these five women just looking at me, you know, with these puppy eyes going, are we going to be okay? And me feigning confidence, absolutely pretending that, of course, we're going to be okay before I actually believed it. And the moment of clarity then came on the back of having reinvented these creative spaces and looking at how people respond to it the the recipients of what we're offering and and when the penny drops and you just go you know what we are only as good as our community so that to me was a turning point and reaffirmed that your values matter in a crisis your values matter when there's no instruction manual that is where you have to look inward and dig deep and more affirming than ever is that reality now hannah Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. I've um, learned so much and I'm re-inspired to, to try to push forward and, and I guess, you know, hit every challenge head on with agency and um, as an ally as well to others. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much and look forward to seeing you. Come, come on down and let's, let's grow our communities like we grow and, and nurture and nourish our plants, you know, in the same way. We just have to kind of continue to grow 
um, our communities and um, we'll get there. I, I Massive, massive faith in people. People are, you know, the change. It'll be awesome. You'll see. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast or on Twitter at BarneyMOC. You can also email me on momentsofclaritypodcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney and thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.